Genesis chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wounds of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for bringing us here today and giving us this time together uh, to worship you 
and to learn from Your Word. And we're asking now, Lord, that You open our understanding so that we may truly uh, grasp how these, how this story and, and the truths uh, conveyed in it apply to us in our situation and how they teach us about how great You are and Your faithfulness. And Lord, may the end in all of it be Your glory and honor, we pray. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Amen. Well, if I, uh, if I promised you the moon, um, you might have very good reason to doubt, okay, that it's ever going to come to pass. <laughs> um, you know, we, we will say things sometimes and say, you can take that to the bank, meaning, meaning you can count on this promise being true. Unfortunately, you know, with some of it, you get to the bank and uh, you, you find that you can't withdraw anything. But when God makes a promise, it is sure. And so there are some um, continuing themes represented again here that I want to highlight today. And uh, just, just kind of for sure keep that one in mind, God's faithfulness, right? Because God is making promises. And then we're seeing as we move through the... Genesis narrative that he is bringing them to pass. And so here's, here's a, uh, a sentence for you to, to represent the main point, um, at least as I, uh, this is my, my view of it here. God superintends all events, even the personal actions of individuals, to bring about the fulfillment of his own purpose. Or you could just say to bring, out, bring about His own purpose. God superintends all events, even the personal actions of individuals, to bring about the fulfillment of His own purpose. God is able to do that, and God indeed does that. He is powerful to do that. So let's just go through a few things here in the narrative and... and uh, Keep that in mind, and also you can, you can see that, um, or at least I tried to, to, to sum that up in the, in the title this morning, Sovereign Intervention. I heard this story years ago, and uh, I don't know whether it's true, so don't hold, don't hold me to that, but, it, but it, makes, it, it just makes a good point. Supposedly it was true. But supposedly during one of their um, modern wars, uh, an, an Israeli general was asked by a uh, journalist, um, how they expected to win against the overwhelming odds. And uh, according to this story, the general responded and said, well, uh, we will either accomplish this victory the natural way or the miraculous way. And he went on to say, the natural way would be that God would intervene and rescue us. The miraculous way would be that we would manage to pull it off ourselves without God's help. <laughs> so, you know, even think, thinking about the phrase sovereign inter intervention, I, I want to I qualify that. Now, I'm not, I don't want to take anything away from the term 
miracles, um, it is true that God has set a natural order. And things run. It, I mean, it's not, I heard a preacher say one time, it's like, it's like God um, built the clock and wound it up and, now, and, and then he just it lets it run. Well, it's not like that. Um, God actually is, is holding the clock together and making, and making the, uh, the machinery work and turn. Um, so it's a little more involved than, you know, we don't, we don't take the deist approach. Um, God is actively involved. But I, but I do want to say this. A lot of times what we think of as, as uh, sovereign intervention, it, it, it might be better to understand that this is really what God is doing all along in order to make His will happen. And that's why I, I, I uh, articulated that the way that I did in my, in my sentence there. God superintends all events. Chose my words carefully there. God superintends all events, even the personal actions of individuals. And I, I, I added that because that becomes clear in this, in this narrative we have before us today. Even the personal actions of individuals, God superintends, to bring about His own purpose. Now, I think that's one of the running themes through the Bible. It's one of the things that we are taught to, to, uh, to, to burn in our minds the fact that God is sovereign. And because He's sovereign, He does whatever He pleases and nobody can stop Him from doing what He wants to do. And because that is true, you and I can rest we can rest with the assurance that God's will is coming to pass. So when God promises, just for example, when God promises good to His people, and He does, doesn't He? When God promises good to His people, He is going to bring it to pass. It's it's not just that He desires to do that wishes to do that, wills to do that, hopes to do that, however you want to say it. No, um, it, it doesn't stop there. He's also able to do that, and therefore He does it. And so uh, when, I, when I read a passage like uh, Psalm 115, verse 3, where the psalmist says, Our God sits in the heavens and does whatever He wills. I, I take that straight up literal as an absolute statement that God does what He wills. Not just that He's able to do what He wills or that He could if He wanted to or something like that, but that He actually does. In other words, that's how the universe works. God superintends all events in order to bring about His own will. And under that heading, all events, human affairs, even personal human affairs are included. So God superintends all events to bring about His own will. Now, just before we even dive into the text here, let me just, let me just make that point this way. Think about Genesis 3. Man has sinned against God, rebelled against God, 
and um, God makes a promise. Promise that there's going to be a serpent crusher. At some point, he, he, he tells Eve, there's, there's going to be continual enmity between the serpent and the seed of the serpent and your seed, Eve's seed. In other words, humanity, human beings. There's going to be this perpetual enmity between Satan and his forces. Even in the human realm, you know, the people that he has working for him, doing his will, there's going to be this perpetual enmity between the satanic forces and the seed of Eve, or we could say, and we talked about this a lot back when we were going through those first few chapters, but the righteous seed, God's people. There's this perpetual enmity. But God says there's going to be this serpent crusher. Yes, the serpent will bruise the seed of Eve, but the seed of Eve will crush the head of the serpent. So he announces right there, there's there's going to be the serpent crusher that's going to bring victory. Now, think about this, and this is my point here. How can we have any assurance? How could Eve have any? Now, that did did happen, obviously, uh, well, obvious to us, 2,000 years ago when the serpent crusher came, right? Jesus came and laid down his life for his people and defeated Satan and uh, uh, in his victory over, over death and uh, in, in taking on our sin and in taking on our punishment for our sin. So Jesus is the, the serpent crusher. But if you put yourself back in Eve's day or at any point during the Old, Old Testament, how do you have any hope any real confidence, any assurance that God can bring that promise to fulfillment? How, how does God bring that promise to fulfillment? My, my point is, is this. In order to bring a big event to pass, in this case, the serpent crusher, Jesus comes and defeats Satan. How does He do that? Well, by living a sinless life and then dying on the cross to pay for our sins. In order to bring a big event like that to pass, there are multitudes of little tiny events that have to be orchestrated, superintended, directed, however you want to say it, to make the outcome be what God has designed it to be. And that's what you find in Scripture. There's never a shift to plan B. Well, we got, got plan A and it rolled along eh, pretty good for a little while and then we had to go, you know, it all fell apart and we had to go to plan B. That never happens in God's, in God's working. So, one of those examples is before us. Now, here's what I want you to think about. We've had promises. I mean, we've looked at them repeatedly. Chapter 12, chapter 13... Um, God is promising Abraham seed and an inheritance, innumerable seed, and then also uh, an inheritance for them. Um, Chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and verse 7, and chapter 13, verses 14 through 17, chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, chapter, and also verse 18, chapter 17, verses 4 through 8, 
I mean, God, God keeps reiterating the promise, promise of seed and promise of inheritance. And then it gets a little more specific when God is talking about the seed. He has to eventually make it clear that the seed is coming through Sarah. Because you remember, they weren't quite, because of their age and um, the fact that Sarah was past childbearing age and so forth, um, they, they, they were trying to think, well, this is going to come about different ways. First, Abraham says, I guess it's going to be, uh, my heir is going to be Ill, uh, my, uh, my servant. And then, no, you know, Sarah gives Abraham her handmaid, Hagar, and they try to make it happen that way. And then the answer is no again. God is saying, no, that's not how Your heir is not going to be your servant. Your heir is not going to be a child by Hagar. The, the, the recipient of these promises, the heir to these promises, is coming through Sarah. And God reassures them of that. Chapter 17, verses 15 through 19. Chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. And then again uh, in chapter 18, verse 4. God makes it clear that the promise of seed, in other words, the child, the child that, that is going to be the heir to the promises of Abraham must come through Sarah. Well, now we're in another situation where... Um, just humanly speaking, it looks like that, that could just totally derail. And by the way, this is the second time that Sarah has been taken into a harem. <laughs> and so, so, I mean, it just looks like the whole plan could be derailed. And more specifically here, you remember just in, in the last uh, 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 chapter there, God said, this time next year. Um, actually, that's back in chapter 18. But this time next year, Sarah's going to have a son. That's chapter 18, verses, uh, verses 9 and 10. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So, so that promise is right. It's, it's fresh. It's, I mean, they're right on the heels of it. And now Sarah's taken away into the harem of Abimelech. Now, what if she does get pregnant? How are you going to know for sure whose son the child is? Or maybe it could happen so that you knew for sure the child was not Abraham's, but Abimelech. And again, the whole plan is derailed, right? But that does not happen, and that cannot happen, because again, God superintends events to ensure that His Word comes to pass. So, um, Sarah is taken into Abimelech's harem, but God protects her from defilement. Now, let me, let me give just a little bit of an explanation here. Because this, uh, for one thing, this may seem odd to you. You're th you. You may have already been thinking, this, this whole story sounds familiar. Sounds strangely familiar. <laughs> and that's because back in chapter 13, the same thing happened in Egypt. Abraham told the same lie, you know, this, uh, this is my sister. Well, it was, it was a half-truth, right? 
because we, we learn here in verse 12, uh, she was indeed his sister, but the, the daughter of, um, of his father, but not the daughter of his mother. So she was his half-sister. So Abraham was telling a half-truth. And we've all heard the old saying, uh, it's in the saying, I don't know if the saying is true or not, but it's, it's intended to steer us clear of these kinds of situations. The old saying, a half-truth is a whole lie. Well, I don't know if that's totally accurate, but it's at least a half-truth. A half-truth is not the whole truth, right? And so Abraham is not actually um, dealing with Abimelech with um, integrity here, nor was he dealing with Pharaoh with integrity. And he was doing it because he was fearing for his life. So here's this little explanation in verse 13. In case you're wondering, why, why would Abraham do such a thing? Well, he's, and, and why are we seeing it twice? I mean, it sounds like, uh, you know, it sounds kind of repetitive. Well, in verse 13, we find out that this was, this was the plan. This is what Abraham did to protect himself. When God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, that is to Sarah, this is the kindness you must do for me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. And Abraham is doing that to protect his own life. We learned back in chapter 13 because Sarah was beautiful and Abraham knew that somebody might kill him in order to get Sarah. So he says, you know, we go into a place, you tell them, this is my brother and what they will do is spare my life. Odd, isn't it? I mean, he didn't seem to have any concern. They may take you into their harem. Uh, we don't know what he was thinking there. Maybe he was thinking they would just say, oh, well, okay, y'all just be on your way um, for some strange reason. But um, that's what happened. She was taken into Pharaoh's household, and now she's taken into Abimelech's household. And again, humanly speaking, it looks like the whole plan here for a child born to Abraham and Sarah and that is how specific God's promise was. Fathered by Abraham, mothered by Sarah. It looks like that whole plan could be derailed. But, and yes, I, like, I always like seeing that phrase in Scripture, verse 3, but God. But God. Now listen, if it were left, to you and I, and to our will, and if we had the power of will to derail God's plan, we would have done it a thousand times over by now. And not only would God have gone to plan B, but also to C, D, E, F, G, H, and I, there's not enough alphabet to cover all the times that um, you know, it would have been plan A1, plan A2, plan A3, and that kind of thing. Ad infinitum. So, it's not, thankfully, thankfully, it's not left to us to bring God's Word to pass. That's His responsibility. And He takes every measure necessary. So, um, 
he comes to Abimelech in a dream. And, and I love what he says. Behold, you are a dead man. That'll get your attention, won't it? <laughs> You're a dead man. In fact, uh, I can identify with that. Probably most every Christian can. I mean, you may, we, we may not have heard those exact words, but that, well, when you come under conviction of sin, that, that's the way you begin to think. You know what? I'm a walking dead man because I've offended God. And so he tells Abimelech, essentially, you're a walking dead man. you got another man's wife. Now, a couple things here, just to try to make these points quick in passing here. But isn't, isn't it interesting? Um, what, what Abimelech does, first of all, is, is uh, make his case, which, you know, it's understandable, because he didn't know. He didn't, he didn't know what was going on. And so he says, look, I've, I've, surely you wouldn't kill an innocent or, or destroy an innocent nation out of the integrity of my heart. I've done this thing. And the Lord acknowledges that that is true. Verse 6, Then God said to him, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. Isn't it interesting that that's not an excuse? I mean, he still... God being fully aware of that, said, you're a dead man. <laughs> you're as, it's, it's a way of saying you're as good as dead because you got another man's wife. Well, I didn't know. Well, you know now. And ignorance is not always an acceptable excuse. And isn't it interesting too, just to make the point here, that it is Abimelech, a pagan king, acting in integrity. And not Abraham, the believer. And because of that, Abraham is going to get raked over over the coals pretty good by Abimelech. Um, And you know, that's a lesson for us, just a side lesson. We need to deal with people with integrity. It's a sad testimony when somebody in the world has more integrity than somebody in the church. But verse 4 tells us Abimelech had not approached her. It's a way of saying that nothing happened between the two so far. It doesn't tell us why, but nothing had happened. And then you get to verse 6, and God acknowledges Abimelech's integrity And not only that, but he goes on to say in verse 6, It was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Isn't that interesting? And and Moses here, the author, uh, doesn't give us the specifics. He doesn't tell us, how did God do that? Well, we don't, we don't know the specifics, but we know that God did it. God kept Abimelech from defiling Sarah. Abimelech did not approach her. There's the, there's the human aspect. 
for whatever reason. But then behind that, the sovereignty of God at work. I did not let you touch her. God says, I know you didn't touch her. I'm the one that kept you from sinning against me. And by the way, if you've ever wondered, um, and I think as Christians we, we, we do wonder, if we know something about the depravity of man, the sinfulness of man, people on the outside, they look at the world and wonder, why are things as bad as they are? Why is somebody blowing up people in New York City? Christians, we, we look at those events a lot of times and we think, why is it not worse? How come, how come people aren't blowing people up in New York City every day of the week? How come people who don't know the Lord aren't blowing people up in every city every day of the week? And the answer is what we call common grace. That is, God restrains the evil of man to some extent. I mean, He allows some things and other things He prohibits. But if He did not restrain at all, what a horrible, horrible, horrible place this would be to live. And there's a lot of evil that goes on now. God restrained Abimelech. God sovereignly intervened in this situation. And why did He do that? Was it simply to keep Sarah from being defiled? I mean, I mean just, just a faithfulness thing you know, between Sarah and Abraham or, you know... Well, all of that plays in, but ultimately, God is keeping intact His plan, His purpose. And in order to bring a big event to pass, God made a promise of seed, right? To your seed. Your seed is going to be the inheritor of the promises. Your seed, through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we learn in Galatians that ultimately that's talking about Christ. And in order to bring a big event like that to happen, for for Jesus Christ to come on the scene, born of a Virgin Mary, of the line of David, roughly 2,000 years ago, a lot of little events had to be superintended prior to that, leading up to that, to ensure that that would happen. And this is one of them. The child had to be the child of Abraham and the child of Sarah. And God is protecting Sarah here from being defiled and protecting the whole situation from any further confusion. So He sovereignly intervenes by not allowing Abimelech to approach Sarah. In the next few verses down, verse 8, about in verse 8, Abimelech wants answers from Abraham. This gets back to the integrity thing, and I thought this was very interesting because he grills him here. Verse 9, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you? that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. In verse 10, And Abimelech said to Abraham, 
what did you see that you did this thing? He's, he's got good reason for these questions and complaints. And he wants, he wants answers. He's not been dealt with by Abraham with integrity. Like I say, it's kind of an odd thing. Instead of, you would think the other way around, right? The man of God rebuking the pagan. But here it's, it's, it's reverse. And it shouldn't be that way, but that's the way that it is. And Abraham gives his reasons, which of course led to all of this. And the bottom line is fear. Verse 11, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. In other words, you're a bunch of heathens, pagans, and I, and I feared for my life. Because my perception was there's no fear of God at all in this place. And that means they'll kill me because of my wife. And then he kind of defends his story. In verse 12, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. So he's, he's trying, you know, actually it was a little, it was a little white lie, Abimelech. Just, just a little white lie, no harm done. Um, but I did it because I thought you would kill me. Now, here's, here's the deal. Think back again to the promises in Genesis 12.3. And reiterated, chapter 17 and 18. What I'm saying is that fear, even the fear of man here that Abraham is operating under, that fear reveals a lack of trust in the power of God. It's an unreasonable fear. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that there probably was, you know, they probably were pagans. There probably was no fear of God in the place prior to this. And again, humanly speaking, Abraham probably had every, every uh, what we would think of as reasonable cause to fear in that situation. Except that he has been promised by Almighty God protection and promised that he would have a child by Sarah. Not that he would be killed and you know God would have to go to plan B because Sarah was pretty or something, but that he would have a child by Sarah. God's Word was at stake here. Not, not just Abraham's life, but the glory of God. And so when Abraham says, hey, I, I, I was afraid because y'all might kill me and take my wife, that's an unreasonable fear because in order for those things to happen, that would mean God's plan would be undermined and His Word would not come to pass. So this is, this is an example of a, an unreasonable type of self-preservation or self-interest. Huh? Certain type is good, right? I mean, it's good to brush your teeth. And it's good to look both ways before you cross the street. Uh, and, all, you know, those, those kind of lock your doors at night. That's, those, that's a certain type of 
self-interest or self-preservation that is probably just wisdom. Don't spit in the wind, you know, that kind of thing. Um, But overvaluing your life or me overvaluing my life uh, becomes a very dangerous thing. You know, when, when uh, in Acts chapter 20, when Paul was talking with the, the Ephesian elders there, um, he told them, I, I, don't, I don't count my life dear to myself. And again, that doesn't mean that he was reckless, that he walked across the street without looking both ways. You know, I'm, and I don't count my life dear to myself, so I'm just going to run and hope it turns out all right. Um, no, it doesn't mean that. What it, what it means is, he trusted God to fulfill His purpose, God's purpose. And, and that was what was most valuable to Him, the glory of God. God's will being done and God being glorified. And so, so Paul's, Paul's thought process was, if, if I am to suffer for the glory of God, that's fine. I, I don't count my, my own life dear to myself. If, if, if I have to suffer to get the gospel to an unreached people, then so be it. I don't count my life dear to myself. In other words, I don't overvalue my own comfort and well-being. I'm I'm willing to put it all on the line for the glory of God because Paul knew that ultimately God's purpose was going to be served. Abraham seemed to be lacking in that Understanding, and so he's resorting to manipulation and lies. And again, it's all—it's all just evidence that he's not trusting God. Well, long story short, here, um, God once once the sin is made known to Abimelech, God demands repentance. That's another good uh, side note there, and. Um, Abimelech complies. And he brings Sarah back, turns her over. And by the way, this this part of the story is quite different from the one in Egypt. There, God pours out plagues on Pharaoh. And when it's all said and done, Pharaoh basically tells Abraham, take your wife and get out of here. Here... Abimelech brings back Sarah. He does, as I said, rake Abraham over the coals. But then he blesses Abraham, basically, and says, stay as long as you, would, as, as you like. Um, you, you can stay in the land and uh, feel free. He probably, uh, a little speculation here, but he probably told him something like, look, just don't lie to me anymore. <laughs> and, and then he vindicated Sarah. In verse 14, Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are, in all, in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone. You are vindicated. And so that some kind of customary transaction taking place there, but the bottom line is um, Sarah is 
through it, Sarah is shown to be innocent in the end. You know, he didn't approach her, and all that's made known here. She's good. She's vindicated. And then remember, too, the Lord had instructed Abimelech to have Abraham pray for him. And so he does that. Verse 17, Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now, this is the point that that I want to leave you on. Remember, remember the statement, God superintends all events, right? Even personal affairs of human beings to bring about His Word. So there are at least three allusions to that here in this text. In verse 6, remember he tells Abimelech, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Those are little statements that are easy to read over and, and, and not, not catch or not let them catch you. But if you think about what is being said there, um, there is, those are explicit statements regarding the absolute sovereignty of God. I mean, because you could ask the question, couldn't you? Well, what, what, if, what if Abimelech refused? What if Abimelech wanted to touch her? What if Abimelech didn't want to do God's will? But, but you know, that option never enters in. Because God superintends events to assure His Word is fulfilled. It's alluded to again in Abraham's little uh, uh, confession here and his little testimony in verse 13. When God caused me to wonder. Did you notice that? When God caused me to wonder. That's the way Christians ought to talk. You know what? Not just about the future, but about the past. You know, James said, we ought to be saying... Not I'm going to go do this and buy and sell in the city and do this tomorrow. But if God wills, I'm going to do this or that. That's the way we ought to talk about the future. And the way we ought to talk about the past is, you know, when God took me here, when God took me there, when what, all I'm saying is we need to acknowledge that God is sovereign. It was God that caused Abraham to wonder. And by the way, um, those kinds of things are made clear. You, you read Stephen's breakdown of Israel's history in Acts chapter 7. L- listen to the way Stephen preaches there and listen to the way he talks about God. In Acts 13, where Paul is in Antioch, read Paul's sermon there. And it's all about God. He's going through the history, but it's always God did this. God did that. God raised up this king. God brought that one down. God did this, and God did that. Because they understood God was in control. So Abraham doesn't say, yeah, when I decided to leave my father's house. No, when God calls me to wonder, here's what I did. And then what about verses 17 and 18? 
Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife. Now, when he came to him in the dream, he told him he was going to die if he didn't turn Sarah back over. He Basically, repent or you're going to die. But what, what he, we weren't told at that point was that God had closed the wombs of all the women in his household and evidently something had fallen upon Abimelech as well, probably why he didn't approach Sarah, some kind of illness or something like that, that God brought on him as judgment. And so with his compliance, he told Abimelech, get Abraham to pray for you and uh, because he's a prophet. And so here, here it happens. Abraham prayed and God healed Abimelech of the thing that he brought on him. And he also healed his wife and his female slaves so that they bore children. Why, why did they need to be healed in order to bear, bear children? Because verse 18 explicitly, again, explicitly tells us, the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. There again is an explicit account of God's sovereignty or God sovereignly acting in the personal affairs of human beings to bring about His will. And that's an example. In other words, this narrative is an example. But if you think about it, there can be no contingencies. In other words, God must superintend all events and does superintend all events in order to bring about the ultimate purpose that he has designed. Now, that's not just me coming to a conclusion. Uh, I can give you examples uh, from Scripture. I'm just going to give a couple here. But Ephesians 1.11, right? He works all things according to the counsel of his will. That is one place. Now, the word all, uh, contrary to what is popularly thought, doesn't always mean all. But in this case, I take that to mean all, all things. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And speaking specifically about uh, the personal affairs of men, you can think of Proverbs like Proverbs 16.1, "...the plans of the heart belong to man." But the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. I mean, even what the man is speaking, right? Proverbs 16.9, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. God superintends all events. Proverbs 19.21, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Or how about Proverbs 21.1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He will. What a statement that is. God has the heart of, a, of the king in His hand and turns it whichever direction He wants it to go. And one more, and I will, I'll leave you with this one. <clears throat> this passage, by the way, Isaiah 55.11 is often taken out of context, I think, or, or misapplied, I guess I should say, misapplied. But the clarity of it really is astounding. I mean, it shouldn't be misapplied. Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. 
This is how it's going to be, the Lord said. So shall my word be. It shall not return to me empty or void, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. No ifs, ands, or buts. No hope so's, maybe so's. It'd be nice if it were so. (laughs) No, this is the way it is, the Lord says. My word doesn't come back empty. It accomplishes that which He intends it to accomplish. Because God is sovereign. And He sovereignly intervenes. Or, again, the way I said it in my sentence earlier, He sovereignly superintends all events, even the affairs of human beings, in order to bring about His purpose. Would you stand, please? Father, we thank You for this time together today and thank You for Your Word. Lord, um, make it effective in our hearts to the end that all of us here would acknowledge Your Lordship, Your sovereign rule, and by Your grace be committed to to a life of submission to You for Your glory. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Dismissed.